When you think of a, a lazy animal, what comes to mind? Maybe you have a cat, big fat cat that lounges around your house and immediately the cat comes to mind. But perhaps all of us would agree that one of the, the animals that we think of that really likes to take it easy is the sloth. A lot like a teenager, but worse. Because a sloth rests 20 hours a day. I know I was a teenager once too, so no offense to those of you that are teenagers. But teenagers like to sleep. Sloths like to sleep. They sleep 20 hours a day. They, they move very slowly. They don't accomplish a whole lot. And because of this characteristic, the word sloth is also used in the English language to refer to a person that takes life far too easy. So to be called slothful, we know, isn't exactly a great compliment. It's, it's kind of an offensive word. That's true of the animal world, but it's also true of the, the human world. People tend to gravitate toward ease. We all do. We all gravitate toward that which is easy. We want weather that's easy on our bodies, jobs that are easy on our backs, schooling that's easy on the mind, and schedule. We have institutions, it seems at times, almost just handing out degrees. You hardly even have to work for some of these degrees or certificates anymore. We like to be around people that are easy on the eyes. That's why people come to our church, because you're all so good looking. Right? We, like, we like things to be easy in life, but unfortunately, while in and of itself, ease is not a bad thing. It's not bad to have an easy test or an easy assignment or an easy day at work. There's nothing intrinsically wrong with that which is easy. The problem is we gravitate toward it to the point that we take that into ministry. And when we, when we serve the Lord, it can be like, well, I, I'll serve you, Lord, but I want it to be super easy. I want ministry on my terms. I want to come and go from church or from ministry when it suits my schedule because I have other priorities. I want everyone to clap at the end of my sermon today. I want my men's event or women's event or life group or children's class to just be absolutely mind-bogglingly awesome. I want minimal work and maximum results. Is this not true of all of us? We like, we like it to be easy. We like life to be simple. Unfortunately, that's not how life works. Fortunately, God often deliberately puts us into hard circumstances, hard ministry assignments, hard ministry relationships, because he wants us to develop. When you run up a steep hill, it might hurt, but it builds endurance. When you lift heavy weights, it might be stressful in the moment, but it builds muscle. And in the same way, God at times literally leads us away from easier assignments to more difficult assignments. He wants us to work hard and to go through some challenges. And there's many good reasons for that in the word of God. We're going to discuss a few of those today. Join me in Acts chapter 16. We'll be studying verses 6 through 40. Here we have a series of events that depicts God using a couple of 
his choice first century servants, notably Paul and Silas. We've met them in the, in the opening part of the chapter and previous times in Acts, of course, leading them from easier assignments to difficult assignments. And, and humanly, you're like, what did the Lord have in mind here? But we see God working through them and in them and in the world around them, using hard ministries to produce beautiful results. So four lessons. Here's what I want to extract from the text. Four lessons that God teaches us when we follow his leading. And they all relate to this idea of difficulty and ease and how God brings good out of bad. The first lesson that I want to extract from the text is this. God's plan isn't always obvious or easy. So here's what the Bible says. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. Perhaps you might have in your mind this idea that God is sort of generic in terms of his ministry interests. He just sends the church out. He just wants us to spread out as far and wide as we can. And in every area, there's equal opportunity. In every area, God is equally working. It just depends on the numbers of Christians that show up, who's doing the preaching. God is sort of generically in charge of evangelism and the building of his church. But this text corrects that theological error in that when Paul and Silas go to an area where there are people who are lost, God's like, yeah, that's not where I want you right now. I want you over here. Isn't that interesting? God does not always work equally in every situation, in every culture. He varies the mode. He has different plans that are known only to him. So we see the sovereignty of God here. We see the activity of Christian evangelists. But more importantly, we see the sovereignty of God in using them to bring the people to Christ that he has in his sovereign plan. And then verse seven says, and when they made, when they came up to Mysia or Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia. This is a province, not a city, but the spirit of Jesus did not allow them. You might've noticed that we have two references to the spirit. We have the Holy Spirit and we have the spirit of Jesus. This isn't two spirits. This is one spirit. The reason why in the second event, it may be called the spirit of Jesus is that it could be that whoever delivered this prophecy, because we're not told how they heard this. We're told what they heard and who delivered it, but we don't know if it came through a prophet, through a sermon, through a vision at this point. Delivered perhaps in Jesus name. And so the author puts that in there, the spirit of Jesus, or it could be the author's subtle way of reminding us that in the triunity of God, they always work together. So we have the Holy spirit, giving direction. We have the spirit of Jesus giving direction and they're, they're in tandem. They're united. So the work of God is always in absolute unity with their father, son, or Holy spirit. So they have assignment number one canceled. Then they have assignment number two canceled. So now they head to a third location. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, which is a port and now we're told how God speaks to them. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. 
And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel uh, to them. As we think about, maybe try to put ourselves into the shoes or sandals, if you will, of Paul and Silas in the first century, we see two very interesting dynamics at play, which I would suggest every one of us needs to learn to live with. Two tensions, two aspects to our Christian calling. The one is they were strategic and they were deliberate. They got out of bed in the morning and they identified specific regions or areas they wanted to go to and they started walking and they would walk and they would walk and they would walk and they would walk and they would go to these far off places intending to preach the gospel. Nothing, nothing wrong with that. So they, they didn't sit on their hands and say, you know what? I've never really been asked to do ministry. So I'm just going to stay at home and stare at the wall. And well, if, if pastor Aaron doesn't call me and ask, I'm not going to serve. If someone doesn't come up to me and tap me in the shoulder and say, this is your specific assignment. I'm just going to, just going to wait around unless God whispers in my ear each morning, go there or go over there. I'm just going to lay in bed, watch television. No, they, they got up and they, they used their time. They, they, they went, they traveled, they had a plan, they were deliberate, they were strategic. And yet at the same time, they were willing because of their humility to be led by the spirit of God. And at times they would be headed in a certain direction and God would be like, that's not what I have for you. I want you to go over there. So they'd start marching in another direction. God would redirect them. So isn't this interesting? They were both led by the spirit of God. And at the same time, they got up in the morning and they made plans and they sought to do something that would contribute to the advancement of the gospel. Here, at least twice, maybe three times, depending on how you see the, the Troas incident. If Troas was the direction they were going in order to get to Macedonia, then they were only redirected twice. But if Troas was a third place they intended to preach and God directed them onto Macedonia, we don't need to make much of this, but minimally twice and perhaps up to three times, they went in one direction and God said, no, that's not where I want you to go. But finally, in a vision, God reveals to them his specific plan for their lives and their ministry at that particular time. We do not know how the Holy Spirit communicated to them in the first two events. Again, it could have been through a dream, two more visions that preceded the third, a prophetic utterance from another believer, an audible encounter, It'd be interesting to know, but we're left to wonder. But what we do learn from the text is the most important thing. And that is that God spoke and God gave them an assignment and God redirected them. Now I want to bring a map up onto the screen. This is not my map. I found it just to give you a bit of an appreciation for what these guys were doing here. So if you look at the top of the map, you'll see in various colors, provinces. You see Cappadocia, you see Galatia, you see Bithynia, you see what was called at the time Asia. Up at the top on the, the yellow there, we have Macedonia. 
And this is part of Paul's second missionary journey, which is indicated by the red line with the arrow at the end of it in the bottom left-hand corner of the screen. You see Paul's second missionary journey. So you see the, the arrow going up and he's in one region and he's in the next region and he's, he's off to the next region. Now, even if you've never been to that part of the world, I think most of us probably have enough appreciation for geography to know that the distance between, let's say, Galatia and Macedonia was slightly further than the distance between Windsor and LaSalle. This was a, this is a massive part of our world. This is pre-motorcycle. This is pre-airplane. This is pre-automobile. And it gives you kind of an appreciation for the fact that these few verses that we read in what, 45 seconds actually depict weeks of travel, weeks of planning, weeks of, well, I guess we're supposed to go in this direction. And after Days and weeks of traveling, God says, actually, no. Okay. So days and weeks now traveling to another province. And then God says, no. Now, most of us would probably start to get frustrated with God at this point, would we not? It's like, I have a plan, God. Why can't you approve it? I mean, after all, I'm preaching the gospel. We have our own little ministry plan. We got up in the morning. We didn't stay at home. We sought to go out into the world. Why are you not blessing our efforts? Because that's not the way God works. We are blessed and we discover God's efforts. When we line ourselves up with his desire and his will, and sometimes God allows us to go on a bit of a detour. Now, when you and I think of detours, we usually think wasted time. So a couple of weeks ago, I had some trash I wanted to get rid of loaded it up in my trailer, and I went off to Essex. And I had a limited period of time. I think I had about an hour and a half or two hours, if I recall, and I was doing a, a wedding, I think it was that day. By the way, you should see me on Saturdays when I do weddings. So I'm outside working. I look like a hillbilly. I'm completely covered with dirt usually. And my wife's always amazed that in like 10 minutes, I can go from looking like a guy that just crawled out of a cave to looking like a guy that could officiate at a wedding. So it was one of those days I'd planned it. I figured I'm gonna, it'll take me a half an hour to get there, a half an hour, let's say, to unload, a half an hour to get back, max, and then I still have a half an hour to get all decked out for, for the wedding. But it didn't work that way. I put my GPS on. I'm like, oh, this is only 23 minutes. Well, 23 minutes turned into an hour because you know what happens in Essex County in the summer, right? Every road is under construction. And at one point I was so frustrated because I turned, I was detoured down this road, drove probably a kilometer, a kilometer and a half, only to get to the end of the road and realize you can't even get out anywhere. So you've got to turn all the way back around and come back and find your way around to the garbage dump and then wait in line for half an hour to unload your garbage. And I got to admit, I was frustrated with that. I didn't see any value in that. I felt I just wasted an hour of my life. And sometimes ministry feels like that. I preached the sermon. I organized the ministry. I had the event. I made the appointment. And we didn't get anything for it. There was no fruit born. But here's one of the interesting things that we learn from God. Sometimes God will allow you to make the trip before he reroutes you. 
And you might feel that's kind of a waste of time. Why did he waste Paul and Silas's time making these trips? Before he said, actually, I don't want you to make this trip, but we're already here, Lord. We're already on our way. We're already en route. And it's easy to begrudge God when we're on one of those detours in ministry or we feel that we've hit a dead end and we, we have to turn around and figure things out from scratch again. The reality is, is that not every second of your life will be spent accomplishing something in ministry. But even in those periods, God is always working to accomplish something in you. God is always working to accomplish something in you. None of us likes to wait on the Lord. If I were to say, hey, how many of you like to wait on the Lord? And anyone puts up their hands, I would call you out as a liar. Okay? Because we don't naturally like to wait upon the Lord. We're not patient. We want results. We want it fast. We want input of energy, output of results, input of money, output of results. That's how we think. And maybe even more in the Western world than in the first century Greco-Roman world. But God is working. He's sanctifying. He's demonstrating his plan. Even now, we, we know why God detoured them. Because now there's a message for the church to benefit from for thousands of years. Ah, so God is working in the waiting. God is sovereign in ministry. God has specific plans and people groups in mind at specific points in time that he has targeted in keeping with the sovereign plan. So they might come to faith in Jesus Christ. Yes, this is why God redirects. This is why God detours. This is why God allows us to do ministry at times without apparent results. So what do we do? We, we get busy seeking his plans. We want to learn what he has to teach us along the way. And as per Paul and Silas, who did not complain, eventually God reveals to them his choice plan for their lives. And what God has in store for you may not be what you expect in the moment. If you've been to our Harvest Essentials 2 classes, shame on you if you haven't, I usually start off with some sort of a little talk about who I am and sort of how God led me into ministry. And so you may have heard this before, but I've never been the kind of guy that's apt to say, God, I'm not going to do that. But I do recall early on in ministry, 18, 19, 20 years old, when you're trying to figure out what, what does God actually have for me? In different conversations, there was two things I said I, I would never do. And those two things include, number one, I would never want to be or have any interest at all in being a lead pastor, right? Youth pastor, that's cool. Missionary dying in a hail of bullets in the Middle East, <clears throat> that'd be cool. <laughs> College professor, that'd be cool. Lead pastor, no. And maybe it's because my view of lead pastors were kind of like, you know, boring, old guys, kind of irrelevant. Kind of like me today, right? <laughs> and so I just had no interest in that. And lo and behold, here I am. Through a series of events, here I am. Secondly, I said I would never move to Windsor. I had dated a girl that had spent some time in Windsor. She kind of, I don't know, in the course of conversation, had a bad view of Windsor, I guess. I'm like, man, I would never move to Windsor. And lo and behold, this is what I do. And I do it in Windsor. So you, you know 
the old line, never say never to God. You just don't know what God has in store for you. But through that, he is still working. Maybe you've heard people say, we roll the dice, but God makes the spots come up. Like, that, that sounds like casino talk. We don't, it's not very Christian. But actually that, that phrase is based upon a verse. And it's taken from Proverbs 16.33, where the Bible says, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. It's not, hey, go and cast lots to determine God's will. It's just using an analogy. We throw the dice, God makes the spots come up, or the lots are cast into the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. In other words, we're active, we're moving, we're planning, we're traveling, but God is the one that ultimately oversees all of ministry. And he may redirect you at any point in time down a road that you weren't expecting to take. And that's not a waste of time. That's part of God's effort to sanctify you into the fullness of Christ's likeness. Second lesson, which we want to extract from the text is this. Hard ministry can bring abundant harvest. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis. So now they're, they're out on the water so they can make some headway here. And from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. Philippi actually is a place where a lot of Roman soldiers would retire. And Paul had some successful ministry there. Maybe you've read the book of uh, Philippians. We remained in this city some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Thyatira was known apparently for what was known as the mater plants. And this plant, which is related to the coffee plant, has a red root on it. And they would take these red roots and they would develop purple dyes from it for textiles. And it was the kind of thing you could make a fair bit of money on. So Lydia, true to her culture, was one such woman. She was a seller of purple goods. And then in the most generic sense, she's not yet converted. The Bible says she was a worshiper of God. Now, you and I know that... People who are generically religious are often the most difficult people to lead to saving faith in Jesus Christ because they're kind of clean living. They feel they already have God or the gods on their side. And so it's sometimes difficult to get through to people like that. But look what the Bible says, again, pointing to the sovereignty of God in salvation, which doesn't exclude the work of the evangelist, but it says the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. It doesn't say he opened her ears like suddenly he gave her the ability to hear. You can hear sounds coming in your head. You can hear the gospel preached. But the internal recesses of fallen humanity are opposed to the things of God. Read Romans 3. So God has to stir her so she can understand the message that's being preached by these faithful evangelists. 
And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So Paul and Silas kick it into high gear. They go from Troas. They go, they go to uh, the Macedonian region where God had, had directed them. And as per usual, they target Jews in this otherwise Gentile region. Natural affinity, cultural connections, could speak the language, all that sort of stuff. It made sense. And out of the people that are converted, the first convert is a woman who is more or less already religious. She is financially well off. She has a house. She has a business. And so brothers and sisters, we're supposed to read this text and say, oh, I wasn't expecting that. I thought it was going to be a beggar. I thought it was going to be a prostitute. I thought it was going to be some former heretic. But here we have the first convert noted in Macedonia was a woman who was already religious and who was a businesswoman. And yet God arrests her heart and she is converted. And then as a first step to the declaration of her faith, what does she do? She gets baptized. She doesn't say, well, I'm going to sit in the back row of the church for six years and mature for a bit. I'm going to go get catechized or study Christian doctrine or attend some Bible college. She understood very early on because she was well preached to that the first thing you do when you repent and trust in Jesus Christ is you get baptized and you don't delay. And then she immediately shows hospitality to the Christian preachers. Hospitality is something that is often underpreached and underpracticed in the Christian church today. But it's so important, it makes it into the lists of qualifications for eldership in the New Testament. You can reference 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2. And one of the requirements to be an elder in a church is to be hospitable. So if, if you're a person, you don't really talk to people, nobody knows where you live, you don't reach out to people, you don't have people in your house, you're not an elder. You don't qualify as an elder. Because one of the marks of eldership is hospitality. And hospitality in and of itself is not the big deal. But hospitality means you love people. You want fellowship with people. You want to interact with people. You want to have, when we have people into our homes, there's something vulnerable about that. There's something personal about that. There's something loving about that. And so right out of the gate, she's baptized in obedience to the gospel, the Great Commission, and she demonstrates hospitality. I want you to notice that baptism comes after, not before, but after the gospel is received after belief. In fact, baptism in every single situation in Acts always comes after the group or the individual is named as having believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. So we, we need to be reminded then, because sometimes we can get this, this can be confusing, that you're not saved through baptism, but baptism must immediately come after salvation to fully profess faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes I've had people say, when you preach, how come you don't have an altar call? Because they're not in the Bible. Here's my altar call. Get baptized. That's your altar call. So your altar call is not, 
oh, I put my faith in Jesus Christ, come to the front, kneel, and we'll pray for you. Not that there's anything bad with that. But we preach the gospel. When you believe, you get baptized. That's where you put it on display. That's where you demonstrate your faith to the world around you. I'm going to save the terminology, her household, for a little bit later, because we're going to see that come up again in another conversion we we will witness momentarily. All right, here's lesson number three. Ministry can also bring hardship. When God directs you to a particular assignment, it doesn't mean everyone is going to be there cheering you on, patting you on the back, being nice to you. As they were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination, meaning a demon, and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. Throughout human history, humans have participated in the cruelty of enslavement or indentured service. As far as we can tell, the the Egyptian pyramids were built largely with slave labor. Many of you will be familiar with the fact that during the first century Roman world, historians estimate that up to to 50% of the population was in some form of indentured service. We're all familiar with Afro-American slavery leading up to the Civil War era. Perhaps you've seen historical depictions of circuses that used to go around and they they would purchase or otherwise capture people with deformities or people with various disablements and they'd put them in cages and they'd put them on display at circuses for people to come and laugh at to make money off them. There's obviously growing concern in the current era with the the rapid increase in sex slavery. Well, this kind of cruelty is as old as the hills. But here's a very unique kind of indentured service. Some people in the town saw this demon-possessed girl and thought, well, we can make some money off her. We're going to turn her into a, a fortune teller. And so they, they prayed her around and they make their living off of, off of this girl. Now, interestingly, in this event, she's following Paul and Silas and their crew around. And when we read what she's saying, it's like, well, there's nothing particularly heretical about what she's saying. She's saying these men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. So why didn't Paul say, hey, listen to her? Why why does Paul exercise this demon from her? Well, we're not exactly sure, but chances are she was mocking them. And this got under Paul's skin after a period of time. Or even if she wasn't mocking them, her message is inadequate it's actually not that much different than Lydia's beliefs. Oh, she was a believer in the most high God. It's a generic kind of religious statement. It's not Christocentric. It doesn't include the cross. It doesn't include a crucifixion. It doesn't include a resurrection. It doesn't include a call to faith. It doesn't include a call to be baptized. It's this generic religious statement that she's making 
that's Christless. Regardless, Paul finally exercises the demon by the power of Jesus Christ, and it's dramatic. So you can see the building here. First of all, we have Lydia's conversion, which is rather tame, but still pretty awesome to witness. Now we have this much more dramatic conversion that God brings about through the proclamation of the gospel. You wonder, well, where, where is this going to go to next? Well, in the meanwhile, before we get to our third convert, the response of her masters, her handlers, is, is pretty sad. Any human who's humane should rejoice that someone has been exercised of a demonic spirit. But for them, it's like, oh, our free lunch just dried up. We're out of money now. We can't capitalize upon this woman's talents. So look what it says they do. But when her owner saw that their hope of gain was gone, their money had dried up, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. Notice this is, this is the classic move of idiots, basically. We're going to take people that are doing good and we're going to try to frame them as being like really bad people, causing civil disturbance, you know, not obeying the law. These men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. Notice how they identify themselves. We're going to come back to it as Romans. The crowd joined in attacking them and the magistrates tore the garments off them. The magistrates, the people in high office are actually physically assaulting and stealing the garments of these evangelists and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them in prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. So this is quite the ordeal. It's like, Lord, we, we were on a vision. Here. We were on a trip here. I mean, we're willing to sacrifice for you. You redirected us after all this travel, not once, not twice, but up to three times. Now we're here and we're preaching the gospel. We've seen a couple conversions. And what do we get for it? We're seized. We're accused. We're misrepresented. We're robbed, we're assaulted, and now we're imprisoned. This would be a good time for you to like enter into the text and visualize yourself in that prison cell. What would you be feeling in that moment? What would be going through your mind? Probably things like, this is what I get for serving you, Lord. This is my reward. Languishing in some dingy prison cell in Asia Minor. Like, really? This is what you have in store for me? Maybe we would think to ourselves, I guess God lost, or maybe more commonly, that you've lost God's favor. But that's not the conclusion that Paul and Silas draw. Even though they are firmly chained, here's what happens next. And we learned that hard times pay off. About midnight... Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. Well, that shows their heart, doesn't it? So they're in the jail and they're, what are they doing? They're praying, singing hymns to the Lord. And the prisoners were listening to them. In other words, they were testifying in jail. 
And suddenly there was a great earthquake, kind of like some of the stuff we experienced this week, kind of felt like an earthquake at times. So that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. A logical conclusion that you'd be apt to draw if you were in his position. But in his mind, as a Roman soldier, he would have immediately understood that he was culpable of dereliction of duty. And so in his mind, the honorable thing to do was to commit suicide. Then verse 28 says, when Paul cried out with a loud voice, go for it, buddy. <laughs> After all, you're my prisoner, my, my imprisoner. He doesn't do that though. He doesn't wish evil upon the man that had imprisoned him. Instead, he, he wants him to stop. And he wants to testify to him too. Do not harm yourself for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And when he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And you're like, ah, that's what God had in mind. I wish I'd have known that going in. But God was actually going to use our imprisonment to lead. Okay, we got Lydia. That was kind of cool. We got the demon-possessed girl. That was really cool. Now we have a Roman head guy in the local penitentiary asking me, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And then we have this line again, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. They evangelized him and his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds and he was baptized at once, he and all his family, who, by the way, let me just emphasize this again, who had all been preached to. And in every other event, when someone's named, there's preaching, then there's belief, and then there is baptism. And then he brought them up into his house, hospitality, same thing that Lydia did. As soon as God saves him, he enlarges his heart for God's people. And he's hospitable. He wants to enter into fellowship and relationship with God's people. He brought them up into his house. He set food before them and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. So here we have the third convert that results, who is at least named. There could have been others in between, but these are the ones that are named. And he is even more unlikely than the previous two. Well, through these conversions, God proves his power. And God proves and shows why hard ministry bears fruit. Now, we all know if we study history, we just don't like to see this in our own lives, that throughout history, when times are especially difficult for the people of God, the number of converts tends to increase. And when things are really easy, the number of con true converts and true followers tends to decrease. And we know it. We just don't want that to be true in our generation. Is that true? Like, that's fine for you, but I'd kind of like it to be a little easier for me. But this is a good corrective and a good reminder. Now, the sentence, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household, does not imply that the faith of the Father is somehow automatically transferred 
to the household and by virtue of his faith, they are saved. Rather, each of them heard the word of God. And by the way, it's an, it's an awfully big leap and stretch to try to use passages like this to validate a covenantal view of paedo-baptism. With due respect, that's an awfully big leap to try to take because the clearest examples in the New Testament always show preaching, belief, baptism. Not baptism of infants, not baptism of those who are associated with the head of a household who happens to have put his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The same language is used of Lydia. So one other point that I think is worth emphasizing, and I don't want to over-preach this point, but in the Western world, when it comes to our worldview, we, we are hyper-individualistic, hyper-individualistic. We have very much of a, a, a mindset that my salvation, my relationship with God is sort of between, you know, me, myself, and God. And you hear people talking about this. I don't need to go to church because I have a relationship with God. Or talking about their personal relationship with God. I have a personal relationship with God. Again, these are not, these are not untrue, but if we emphasize that to the exclusion of the corporate responsibilities we have, the fact that we're part of the bride of Christ, emphasize the corporate words. We don't talk about that. Family, assembly, gathering, joint heirs, ecclesia. We don't emphasize that enough. And it's like, you need to have a personal relationship with God. It's all about you and your personal life and your prayer life. Then of course, that works well in the Western world. Everyone just thinks it's, it's, it's really about me, myself, and, and Jesus. So the, because that's part of our mindset, it's very common to have two Christian parents and their kids aren't even saved. And it's like, how does that happen? Well, part of it is you're fighting against culture because we have this idea that, well, mom and dad, they make their own individual decisions. And sometimes parents are the problem too. And they say, well, I don't want to impose my faith upon my kids. It's like, why not? I don't want to impose Christian. I just want them to make their own decision. And this is a language that I grew up with, and it's the language of big, the big Eva Christianity, big evangelicalism today. So the, the notion that, you know, Papa Bear comes to faith in Jesus, the Philippian jailer, or Mama Bear, Lydia, comes to faith in Jesus. Her husband isn't named, so perhaps she's a widow. And the household would follow. It's like, wow, that actually happens? Yeah, it happened all the time because families were tight. And whole clans would convert to Christianity, not, well, the 16-year-old did, the 14-year-old didn't, the 12-year-old did, the 10-year-old didn't. Like, it was very common for households to say, well, if Mama Bear or Papa Bear have put their faith in Jesus Christ, I'm going to listen to and I'm going to follow in their lead. So there's, there's, there's an imitative dimension to the Christian faith being passed on from generation to generation. So this is not to say that one can be saved without belief. One does need to hear the word of God preach. One does need to believe. But there's a certain, I would just say, maybe one of the lessons for us is there's a certain optimism that Christians should have. When mama bear and papa bear come to faith in Jesus Christ and baby bears hear the story of the gospel, we should anticipate that they too will repent and put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Really, really interesting to think about. Verse 35. Here's where things finally uh, end in this saga. But when it was day, the magistrate sent the police saying, let these men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. In other words, oops, we made a mistake. We're just going to let you go. Well, Paul could have said, I got people to evangelize. I'm just going to go. Or I don't get involved in these kinds of things. I don't want to be a bad witness. So I'm just going to tuck my tail between my legs and, and go. Paul's like, yeah, no, no, I, I'm, I'm going to take this to the next level. I'm going to leverage the courts. Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are, here it is again, Roman citizens. Remember, they claimed to be Romans. They didn't realize Paul and Silas were also Romans who had equal rights and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So when they went out of the prison, so they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. When they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. So this is a a pretty interesting event. When they're asked to leave the city, they're like, yeah, no, we're going to do some ministry first. We're going to visit Lydia. We're going to visit the brothers. And on our time, on our terms, we're going to leave town. So first of all, God uses hard times to bring about conversions. And also in this text, these early Christian evangelists leverage, if you will, the legal processes in order to be vindicated of the wrong that had been done to them. Brothers and sisters, right and wrong should, in a properly functioning society, I emphasize that language, in a properly functioning society, it doesn't mean we're in one, but in a properly functioning society, right and wrong should be acknowledged in our legal systems. Obviously, it's often the opposite, but sometimes the system works, and there is wisdom as Christians in testing it. And where we have opportunity, using it to our advantage. This is what these early apostles did. They could have just said, you know what? We got, we got sermons to preach. We don't have time for this. They're like, yeah, no, we're not going to let you get away with the injustice you've committed against us. Maybe a super spiritual person nearby might say, yeah, but the Lord used it to see the Philippian jailer and his household converted. Granted, granted he did, but we're still not going to allow you to get away with it. So they, they demand an apology. They appeal to their Roman citizenship, which afforded them certain rights and protection. They appealed the treatment that they had been subjected to, and they were vindicated, even receiving a public apology from those that had thrown them in jail. So perhaps a take home for us would be to acknowledge that while we do not fully trust in courts, human courts ever in any culture at any point in time, we do not fully trust in the courts to determine right from wrong because they may determine that you're wrong when in fact you were right. Nevertheless, it would be foolish for us to deny their limited value 
and defending justice in a properly ordered society. So all in all, from this text, we're reminded that sometimes God will redirect us from that which we think is our assignment to a new assignment. Sometimes he'll redirect us from something that may otherwise be easy to something that is a little more difficult. Sometimes God will use us to see very unexpected people come to faith in Jesus Christ. And the applause won't necessarily immediately follow. We may suffer for it. But even in that, God is working out his redemptive plan to bring all those that he has called in his eternal decrees unto himself. It won't necessarily be an easy plan, but let's make sure we're seeking the guidance of the Holy Spirit day by day. And even when he's silent, continuing to serve, continuing to discern to the best of our ability what he wants us to do, but relying upon God to ultimately guide us and use us and bless us in keeping with his sovereign and loving plan. Really, this is a bit of a snapshot of the history of the Christian church. This same, these same kinds of things have repeated themselves time and time and time again throughout history, and yet God has continued to see fit to build his church. So let's pray that God would uh, allow us to put this instruction into practice. <laughs> 